What is it like to, to live as a Christian in a society that's at odds with or sometimes in direct opposition to what Christians actually believe, what we, what we say, how we live? How do we function as a church in a culture that's increasingly hostile to Christians and to Christianity? I know many of us, we, we feel the urgency of questions like these today. Uh, while the read an article this week talked about kind of the winds of the culture um, used to be somewhat at our backs as Christians. Now they are, they are in our face and they are increasingly violent and becoming more intense. Very powerful and increasingly combative forms of secularism. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But they're, they're bringing sweeping change and, and doing so with this breakneck speed in, in our own context. And so what's our posture supposed to be? Are we to assimilate, just kind of lose our distinctiveness and, and adjust to, to, to stay up with the times? Is it time to, as this has become a, a very deconstruct our faith? See what that looks like in, in this new world. Or are we to grasp for power once again, to, to take back the cultural influence that's been lost over the last few decades? Or are we to withdraw? kind of retreat into our sort of virtual bunkers and just simply prepare for a new dark age. Just focus on self-preservation, protection. How are we to live as Christians, as churches, in, in an increasingly, it's been called a post-Christian world, in the West in particular? Well, these are somewhat novel questions for Christians in the West, particularly in the United States, to be asking. These are not new challenges for the body of Christ. Persecution, marginalization, slander, sometimes through very direct governmental opposition, sometimes through just more social ostracism. But th these have been the norm throughout church history. And they're the norm for most believers in the world today. I mean, we know the more extreme examples of this in Afghanistan and in, in Nigeria with Boko Haram and, and in North Korea and in China and in, and in northern India and on and on and on. These places where there's very intense persecution of the church. And then, but there's widespread ostracism in most parts of the world. We have thankfully lived the exception, not the rule, here. Now, what does any of this have to do with the book of Esther? A lot, actually. I think you'll see. In Esther, the Jews are a religious minority living in Persia, a society that was dominated by these spiritual and cultural and moral values that were in direct opposition to theirs. They had no power. They had no influence. They had no king. They had no land. They had no army. There's like a little colony of ants that's clinging to this you know, log on this enormous lake, just struggling to survive. That's the picture. And there are these very powerful forces that want to completely eradicate them. It seems like the wicked are winning. It seems like God has just checked out. But what we find in this story is that even when God seems to be absent, He's not abandoned them. He's working providentially. He's keeping His promises. He's preserving His people, even when it doesn't seem that way. So the book of Esther, it's not, as, as we're saying, it helps us as we think about living in a, in a culture at opposition to us, it's not a moralistic kind of how-to manual of living faithfully in a hostile culture. 
It's not what this is. It's not be like Esther. No, I hope you're not like Esther, as we're going to see. But it does. It gives us hope that no matter how dark and troubling our circumstances become, no matter how compromised his people may be, no matter how hidden God may seem, he will not abandon his people. No matter how bleak the future appears to be, God keeps his promises. He will not let us go. And knowing that does change how we live and it changes how we think and it changes how we speak and walk in this world. So, plan for the morning. Three, three things. I know this is an ambitious attempt in, a, in one sermon, but these are, this is how we're going to try to get off the runway in our study of Esther. One, why, why the book of Esther? I hope that we've accomplished that and that was my point and what I've said up to this point. So we'll check that one off. Secondly, uh, give a brief introduction to the book. And I, I'm really going to try to be brief here. I know this is, this is a struggle. When you're starting a book, there's all of these interesting facts and figures in history, and, and, and a lot of it's really important. But what I want to do is as, as those introductory matters become important to the passage that we're studying week to week, we'll bring those in at that time. So I'm not going to dump it all on you at one time, but I'm going to kind of bring in the important aspects as they're relevant to the passage we're in. But we will do, we'll kind of place it in its context and get an overview of what Esther is about. And so we will do that. And then third, we'll look at verses 1 to 9 together, or 1 to 8 this morning together. So when is this taking place? I know some of you love this kind of discussion, and you can think, you can, you've got a virtual timeline in your mind all the time. This is just how you think. And others, you're like, I have no, this just doesn't help me at all. And so I'm speaking to that first group, and hopefully I don't lose the second group. Just bear with me for a couple minutes. But 586 B.C. is a very important date in redemptive history and biblical history. And so this is one of those dates you, you really, really is helpful to know. Uh, and so this is when, this is when Judah fell to the, the Babylonians and it was an, it was an act of divine discipline. God told him this was going to happen. So the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he sacked the city, he burned the temple, and he took away God's people into exile. And so in, 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 but this punishment of God's chosen people, it wasn't indefinite and it wasn't without remedy. God promised, He made a promise to His people through, through different prophets that, that, they, that they'd return to Jerusalem. You can read Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 3. Just be one example of where we find those promises. So in 539 BC, so 47 years later, fast forward, the Persian king Cyrus the Great, he conquered the Babylonians, he and his armies. And this began this, this 200 year empire. The Persians had this grip on that part of the world for 200 years until Alexander the Great and the introduction of the Greek Empire. And so the Jews, they've, they'd been in exile for almost five decades under the Babylonians when Cyrus defeated them. And, and they're, and they're still waiting for that time though when they'd be allowed to return to their homeland. It was, as was prophesied. So after the defeat of the Babylonians, God's answer comes through Cyrus. Cyrus gives this decree that the Jews be allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild, rebuild the temple, and this would all happen on Persia's dime. This is amazing. You can see this in, in Ezra chapter 1. That you can read this decree. And so Cyrus did something similar with other peoples that, that had, 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 were part of that Babylonian empire when he conquered them. And, and so this wasn't, though, it wasn't about religious tolerance or about, you know, philanthropy or just general goodwill. What this was, it was a plan 
by this pagan king to strengthen his authority in this very vast empire. So how is he going to hold it together? And so he, he, he sends people back in and, 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 and hopes that they will remain loyal to him by his, his kindness. And so we can read about the reestablishment of the Jews in the land in Ezra and Nehemiah, for instance, and Haggai. But what we find, most of the Jews, they don't go back. Most of them don't. And so the book of Esther, it's telling us a story of the Jewish people who about 50 years now after Cyrus's decree, about 100 years after they went into exile, people have come and gone. 100 years. But, but these are people who have apparently chosen not to go back. And that's where we pick up the story here. Now, what's the point of Esther? Well, because it's, Esther is part of, it's, it's a historical book in the, in the Bible. It's in that genre. But it's not just dates and places and names and events. That's not, it's not just recording, recording raw data. It's theological history. It, it's, it's the human author, which is own, unknown to us, but under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's making a very definite point in this story. And so to grasp what's really happening in Esther, we've got to go back to the beginning, back to Genesis, really. Genesis 3.15. And, and, and so from that moment in the garden, when that promise is made that the, that, that the serpent's heel would be bruised and, and the head of the serpent would be crushed, from that moment on, Satan has wanted to destroy the promised offspring who would eventually crush his head. And that, everything moving forward is, is around that. We see him attempt this in, in Exodus when God's people are put into slavery and just doing this backbreaking work. And, and when the, the Jewish males, the, the Hebrew males, two years and younger, are destroyed and thrown into the river. He, we see it with his, his Pharaoh's desire to crush the Israelites in the Red Sea. All of those attempts fail, though. We see it in Christ's line through the tribe of Judah as it's, as it's brought down through violence to one person. One surviving seed of the woman here, Joash. And yet God rescues him and preserves him. We see it again in the New Testament with the birth of Christ at Bethlehem and, and Herod has all the boys two years old and younger killed. We see it in Satan's temptation of Christ to, to denounce God, to, to worship Him. We see it in Judas's betrayal of Christ as Satan entered into him. Scripture says, all of these attempts to destroy God's people, His, His promised offspring, the Messiah, they failed. They failed. And so, so did one that's recorded here in Esther. And that's what, that's what this is showing for us. We'll see this diabolical plot in a few weeks, this, this satanic scheme to annihilate God's chosen people and prevent any possibility of the Messiah. We're going we're gonna to see this as we walk through. So if I could give you a one-sentence summary, and I think this will be on the screen, but it's just this. Through the invisible hand of providence, God uses flawed people to keep His promises. Was, I had a much longer sentence. It took a lot of work to boil it down to that, so you can be thankful. Um, so, so here what we see. God, and what we see is God's not working through... This is different than Daniel. Daniel's in Babylon, and so you go back to that time of exile, and, and we have this, this kind of hero in Daniel, and we, 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 we want to be like Daniel. It's, it's different in Esther. It's a very dark and complicated story here. This is, this is very unlike the VeggieTales version of Esther that many of you have, have endured. Um, it's actually quite humorous, but it's not true to the story here. There's lying, there's sex, there's murder, there's gallows, there's impaling, 
There's actually a lot of impaling. The, the, the motivations of the leading characters, Esther and Mordecai, they're murky at best. And sometimes they seem to be blatantly self-serving. So we have to reckon with that reality. The, the, the hero and the heroine, it's, it's, not a, it's not a human. God is the hero of the story. Even though hidden, as we're going to see, his sovereign, providential work is very evident. And one side note before we jump into the text, and it's this. Jews, they love the book of Esther. Today, in particular, because it shows the beginnings of the Feast of Purim, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, or in several weeks. But, but it, it's been read annually in the synagogue for over 2,000 years now at, during the Feast of Purim, which next one will be in March of 2022. And so in reading it, they, 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 they love recounting how the Jewish people were saved from, from annihilation. And, and, and we're going to see they killed over 75,000 of their enemies in the Persian Empire. So the Jews love it. Christians, historically, we haven't known what to do with this book. <laughs> and so, it, 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 obviously, we've already said it lacks that reference to God. It, it actually lacks any kind, of, any kind of clear spiritual values, we could say. And yet it's full of sensuality and brutality. For the first seven centuries of the church, there were zero commentaries that were written on the book of Esther. Then comes along John Calvin, 16th century, the great, one of the great theologians and Bible teachers and commentators in the history of the church. But he, we have no record that he ever preached a sermon from Esther. And he certainly never wrote a commentary on Esther. He wrote commentaries on most of the other books of the Bible. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer from Germany, he said it was basically a terrible book. <laughs> he said it was, a, he was a great enemy of it, his words, and he wished it had never been written. Now, I agree with both of those guys a lot, uh, but I disagree with them on their assessment of Esther, and I hope that that will become plain as we walk through. So let's read the text. Esther chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 8. As you're turning there, if you're not there, so you go to Psalms, took left, Job, those are kind of two big books in the middle, and then it's just on the left side of Job. Uh, you'll, get, you'll find Esther tucked in there. You know, if you, if you want a commentary to go along with the study, there, there are several helpful ones that I've found. I'm, I'm kind of, they're new friends and I'm trying to get, get to know, but Karen Jobs has a very good commentary on Esther. If you want something to follow along, just throw that out for what it's worth. If you like something to complement our study together. Esther 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. Well, he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Even when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were white cotton curtains and violet, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. We'll stop there. This is a fireworks show at the beginning of this passage that we're going to see. If I could sum up these opening verses and, and the connection I hope to make to us as we think of our own context, it would be with this phrase. It, this is giving us this snapshot, snapshot excuse me, of, of life as exiles in an empire of idols. It's life as exiles in an empire of idols. And so to bring it into our context, we, we understand that language of exiles. That's how the New Testament speaks about the church. Despite the issuing country of our passports, Paul reminds us that our, as a Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. We have this dual citizenship. While we wait for the coming kingdom that's, that, that awaits, we are, we are urged by Peter to live as sojourners and exiles now. We'll come back to that, but that just keep, that's the imagery in mind. So first thing we see as we open this up is life as exiles in an empire of idols. It's difficult and dangerous. It's difficult and dangerous. And as we walk through these opening verses, and we see this display, there are two very clear and present dangers that I think we can see in these opening verses. One is the danger of just being completely intoxicated by the wealth and the power and the pleasure that we see here. To, to, to assimilate into that idolatrous, idolatrous culture. This was a, a real temptation for the Lord's people here. So that was, that's one. The other danger is the danger of being so out of step with that culture that you become at odds with the leadership and you just get run over by them. And so the danger of being corrupted on one hand, the danger of being crushed on the other. That's, that's, that's what we're walk, talking about. So verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, whose Persian name is Ahasuerus, his Greek name, which we're probably more familiar with, Xerxes. That's the name we probably are used to hearing because the Greeks were the better historians and recorded much of this that we know, uh, the details that we know outside of the biblical account. So Ahasuerus, he reigned over Persia. Here's some more dates, sorry. 486 to 465 B.C., so about 20 years. Remember, Cyrus first conquered um, the Babylonians for Persia in 539 B.C. So we're talking about, again, like 50 years later. 50 years into the Persian Empire. So Ahasuerus, he began his reign at the age of 32. Is anybody here 32? Don't be embarrassed. Any 32-year-olds? Close to 32-year-olds? All right, somebody? Okay, maybe over here. All right, did your daddy give you an enormous kingdom or anything like that? No, okay, all right. Um, so he, 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 at 32 years of age, he receives this expanding, this enormous empire. The, the story opens in the third year of his reign. So he's 35 or so years of age, 35, 36. Now, when Esther will enter the scene in a couple weeks here, just know she's about 15 to 20 years younger than he is. And so Ahasuerus, he towers over human history at this time. 
He is, he is the man. He's larger than life at the, in, in the world at this time. He, 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 we're going to see he towers over this story, over the life of Esther, but over the story of the book of Esther. So that's the impression these opening verses are meant to, to carve on us, really. And so you see verse 1. Ahasuerus, he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. From modern-day Pakistan to the east to Sudan in the west. And so... Uh, there's a map on the screen, maybe. We show that so you can get some idea. Sorry, it's not a very attractive map, but everything in green, he ruled. And that's those are, it's a modern map just showing you the territories that, that he was over 3 million square miles. So just look at those nations up there. Just imagine today one ruler, one spiritual and political leader rising up with such power that they can turn Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and several other Middle Eastern countries into one nation under his rule for 200 years. Imagine that. Even today, that would be astounding. Just to get a few of those nations to get along, which seems like it's going to take a miracle. We're realizing that right now, aren't we? These peoples historically, they have fought and they have killed one another for generation after generation after generation. They have mostly been enemies and not allies. So this is impressive to say the least. This very diverse empire, many different ethnicities, many different languages, very different geography, different cultures, different religions, different values, different convictions, and on and on and on. And Xerxes has, this was the the rust of his, the first couple years of his reign was to really consolidate that whole empire that his father, Darius, had worked so hard to expand. So he's brought it all together. So what this writer is communicating is simply this. Here is the most powerful man on earth. And he was at the time. So verse 2, he says, In those days he was sitting on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Susa is in modern day Iran. This is where his winter palace was. I mean, who wants to spend the summers in Iran with no air conditioning? And so he has his winter palace there, and then he has, you know, his palace there, and he has backup palaces for other seasons and other places. That's how wealthy he was. And so this is, this is a picture of a man who's arrived. He's arrived, sitting on his throne, reigning over this expansive kingdom. We're supposed to be impressed by him. He's, he's looking godlike. No one compares to his power and authority. Up to this point in world history, there's never, ever been an empire this large, this vast, this affluent, this powerful. That's what, that's what we're coming out of the gates with. We also know from history that, that he has this powerful army that protects him. That's their job. They're called the immortals. I wouldn't want to face those guys. These fierce, well-trained warriors that were his personal bodyguards. There were 10,000 of them and they went everywhere with him. Everywhere. And, and they were glad to die to protect him and to go to war for him. That's quite an entourage to have. And so we're introduced to this great and mighty king Ahasuerus sitting on his high, high on his throne in this fortress palace that's up on this hillside looking down on all the others that are beneath him We'll, we'll learn soon enough that he has, he has multiple wives. And besides that, he has an enormous harem. So he has, 
there's, a, there's an entire section, as we're going to see, in the palace, just devoted and set aside for all of the women that are there for his pleasure. So it's a lavish lifestyle, not just of power and authority, but of self-gratification at the expense of male, of the sons of Persia and of the daughters of Persia, widely mistreated, as corrupted as your mind can imagine, really, that's the reality in this idolatrous empire in that day. So what's this godlike king going to do with all of his money and his power, with all of his fame, with all of his resources? Is he going to care for the widows and orphans in the land? Is he going to look after those in his kingdom who are abused and mistreated? No, he's going to throw a party. A massive banquet. We see this in verse 3. Now there are multiple banquets or feasts throughout this book and they, they essentially kind of make up the literary, literary skeleton of the story here. And so these are the scenes, these party scenes are where significant things happen, where the transitions in the story really take place in these banquets. And so here's the first of several. Now what's this first one all about? Now you think about it. How are you going to maintain an empire that large? How, how are you going to, you got no digital technology, you don't have, you know, spy drones that can keep an eye on these remote, remote parts over these three million square miles, you don't have mass media to communicate quickly, you don't have, you know, rapid form of transportation where you can get there if you need to, none of that. How can you keep this many people in line in this big of an area? How? And, and he also, he's planning these up, upcoming military campaigns, particularly one against Greece, and so he needs support. And how can he get the backing he needs from all of these different groups from this vast empire? How is he going to do that? Well, we find out this is what this is about. In verse 3, in the third year of his reign, he musters all the nobles and officials and military leaders and, and princes and governors of these provinces, and he brings them to a his palace, and he throws the party to end all parties. He feeds them the best food. He gives them the best wine. He hands them the most beautiful women. He gives them lavish gifts of gold and silver. These are tax dollars at work here. And, and in turn, the thought was, these men will do just about anything for me then because I'm giving them what they but they desire, I'm taking care of them. And, say, and there were thousands of people. About, most estimate as many as 15,000 would have been included in this party. 15,000. Now, if you've ever done event planning of any kind, if you've, some of you have planned some wedding receptions this summer, some of us have, you start thinking about 15,000 people. Transportation, lodging, security, food, drink, flowers, place settings, entertainment, and on and on. And everything is complimentary. It's all a gift of the great king Ahasuerus. And how long does the party last? A couple days, a week? No, we read 180 days. Six months. Six months party for 10 to 15,000 people. Verse 4, we see what this is about. He, he showed the riches of His royal glory and the splendor and pomp of His greatness for many days, 180 days. There used to be a show called Crib. Some of you may remember this if you're a child of the 90s, you know. But there were, there were, there were, a celebrity would take, a, would, would take an hour and show you his home and, you know, the room by room and uh, the garage, you know, enormous garage full of all these sports cars and the Infinity Edge pool and all that stuff. And, and we just kind of gawked at uh, these lavish estates. That's essentially what the king's doing here. For 180 days, 
showing off his wealth, and wealth meant power. Showing them his what? Glory. That's a worship word, isn't it? We know that word. Everyone, come see my glory. See me high and exalted. See me seated on my throne. He's trying to show with this lavish banquet for all of his subordinates, he's trying to say, I am a force to be reckoned with. But what, what do you need? What do you need after a six-month party showing off your glory like that? You need another party. So we see this in verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So now he opens up the party to the regular folk. The, the poor people, the peasants, the commoners. These are probably many of them who, those who served during that 180, 180 day party, and this is sort of their reward for their labor. But either way, these are ordinary citizens and they get this one week off of work to, to, to party, a once in a lifetime opportunity to, to be, have access to the grounds of the palace. Again, tens of thousands of people here for these seven days. And it's a huge feast, an enormous banquet. And look at the detail with which the author describes the, the sights that these party goers would have beheld. You see it in verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple. So violet and purple, I knew to us, that just sounds like, oh, that's an interesting color choice. This was, this, was, this was the most expensive color you could have because the dyes were, were very expensive to, to, to get. And so rare colors in that day, only the most affluent and wealthy people could have. So the, the, the writer here is just showing, this is the equivalent would be like us having the designer labels on you know, our clothes or you know, purses, handbags, that kind of thing. And you, and you see those and you go, wow, they must really have a lot of money. And how did they afford that? And, and this was purple in that day. And here's all of this purple, all of this violet, and it's on silver rods. Now, how many of you have silver curtain rods that you've got to polish and all that stuff? Nobody. It's, 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 it's just, and you think of how enormous this palace, how many windows, how many curtains this was. This was overwhelming. And marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver. Now this part's just crazy. That's a really nice couch. What's it made of? Uh, gold. You know, I mean, this is insane. You got down the hill these poor people who are hunting and fishing and farming just to kind of go day to day to have something to put in their bellies. And here, up on the on the hill, is this great king Ahasuerus sitting on his golden couches. And this mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Now, we use precious stones for jewelry. They're, they're rare, and we, we, we save up to have some kind of you know, nice jewelry like that. He uses them for flooring. He wants his floors to sparkle, to, to shimmer. So he's just, this is just, just putting it on the ground. That's how over the top this is. It's overwhelming. This place is designed to take your breath away, to just leave you gawking and and, and just speechless as you walk in with no doubt as to the power and the authority and the wealth and the affluence and the influence of this man who ever lives here. That's the design. You have drinks served in golden vessels, golden goblets. So those guests, those poor guests were holding in their hands uh, uh, something more valuable than anything they've ever had in their lifetime. And there's drinking from it. It's just part of the place setting. Vessels of different kinds and this royal wine. Now, there's regular wine and there's royal wine. This isn't out-of-a-box wine. 
This is, this is the good stuff. This is the stuff that the king drank. And here, here it is. Verse 8, And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. But the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Here's the rule in terms of drinking and partying. There are no rules. <laughs> do what you want. Drink as much, as little as you want. Now, one writer says of this, he says, in an, in, an, in an autocracy, the absence of a rule requires a decree. That's true. So it's hard not to smirk a little when we read verse 8. It is for me. He, he is micromanaging the, the megalomania of this king who has to legislate how people drink at his party. And that's exactly, I think, what the author wants us to think and feel as we, as we encounter this. So I just want you, I hope you get an idea of that magnificence of this event, and, and it reflects this unrivaled authority and power and wealth of, of this man, Ahasuerus, and his kingdom. That's the, that's the intention of this. He, he wants us to bow down in awe and reverence. Look at me and my glory. No one like me. He wants to be adored by his subjects. He wants to be feared by his enemies. He wants to be obeyed by everyone. He wants total control. This is a, listen, that's a difficult and a dangerous place to live as God's people, isn't it? Live as an exile. But God's people, they're not without hope. And we're going to see this is going to be a difficult place as we read on in this chapter. They, they're not without hope. They're not without help. Life and an, as an exile in an empire of idols, it's very difficult. It's very dangerous. But this brings us to the second point. It's also doable. It's doable. And there are three reasons from these verses. And I want us to, so we're kind of looking, squeezing this text and seeing how this connects with us and how this was an encouragement to God's people and those first readers of this book as well. First reason we can live as exiles in an empire of idols is this, is because, because God laughs. He laughs. And we can laugh with Him as we read between the lines here. Now, we're going to see this throughout Esther. There, there, are, there is, there is, there's this irony that runs through this story. There's this intended irony, in particular in these opening verses, an irony that's lost on, most, on many modern readers. But this, the original readers, they would have been immediately struck by it. They would have seen it. Because they would have known that the great Xerxes... High and mighty Xerxes who, who wanted to be called king of kings by, by those in his empire. They would have known that he in just a few years would come stumbling back from, from a humiliating military defeat in Greece after having exhausted all of his wealth to try to win that battle. They would know this. And so the author's writing well after that defeat, and, and he could have introduced Ahasuerus as this Persian king who lost this famous battle to the Greeks. That's could, that could have been how he started this, this, this story, and that would have been totally accurate. Instead, how does he introduce him? As this king sitting on his throne in all the splendor and all the optimism of his glory days. Here he is, mighty king Ahasuerus. So the Esther story, as we're going to see as it unfolds, it's this ironic reversal of everything that we expect. What appears inevitable is not. Who appears invincible, they're not. 
Appearances are not what they seem. One writer says, the author here teaches us to make fun of the very forces that once threatened and will again threaten our existence and thereby make us recognize their triviality as well as their power. I think that's the intention here. We're, we're, we're to, to laugh almost be with God. We're able to see that the emperor, he has no clothes. The facade is, is unmasked for us in, in, in the story. We see the truth about this, quote, you know, this vast empire of idolatry. Psalm 2-4, we read this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He, the Lord holds them in derision. So as we make that connection for us, we, we are exiles in a world full of idols. And I'm not saying like we're exempt from idolatry, but this is, this is the world we live in while we don't have one tyrannical king who's parading his power and wealth and demanding our, our wills be bent to his. We don't have that, but what we find is we live in a day full of Ahasuerus's. This is everybody. Uh, I found, I'm finding great help in a, in a book. It's not a commentary, but Mike Cosper has written a helpful book. It's called Faith Among the Faithless. Learning from Esther how to live in a world gone mad. And it's very helpful. But he talks about this. He says, if, if, if Xerxes was the incontestable godlike ruler of his day, secularism is the incontestable God in our own culture. Now, I don't use secular, secularism as just kind of a generic word that means, you know, those, those bad ideas from those people over there as opposed to religious, you know, those are secular. That's not what I mean. But I mean a worldview, an ideology that, 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 that permeates our world on both sides. This is a nonpartisan issue, but it denies real transcendence. It, it, the foundational ideas of our world, I'm talking about our, the world in which we live, in the West, it, it's to, it says that all that exists is what can be seen and what can be touched, and what can be smelled, and what can be comprehended through ordinary means. It's a closed system. There are no transcendent forces outside. There's no being that has authority over this world. Secularism, it's about autonomous freedom. We are who we, who we want to be. It's freeing people to seek out pleasure and happiness wherever they can find it. It's, it's freeing people from the burden of any kind of fixed laws or morality or truths that you know, come down to us from some transcendent creator. In a, in a secular society like ours is becoming more and more, even nature, nature loses any real sense of authority. I mean, this is why, you know, that nothing's off limits. Cloning and and changes to our bodies and calling, you know, biological males a female, a woman. In a world that doesn't recognize God as authority, nothing's out of bounds. There's, no, there's nothing external to judge the merits of, a, a, you know, a so-called advance or of any decisions we make. It simply comes down to kind of the wider group's approval or disapproval. What do people... And, and listen, that's always changing, isn't it? It's always changing. We've seen this changing rapidly in the last few decades. Culture as a whole determines whether a whole host of things are acceptable paths to happiness. 
And that could be from gay marriage to polyamory or to whatever else. Are you, and, and who are you to object to somebody's path to happiness? That's, that's secularism. I will be who I want to be if it makes me happy. That's, Cosper is pointing out, this is, this is one of the applications in our own context and living ex, as exiles in the world. And this is where I wanted you to take encouragement. It's doable because we can see behind that facade and we can laugh with God. We can, the life without God, it's a sham. It's a sham. We must see it for what it is. Not in a proud, boastful, self-righteous way. That's not what the laughter is about. But it's in an honest way of seeing things rightly. And, 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 and when people are living ignorant to the reality of God, that's it's not just a wrong way to live, but it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a miserable way to live. It's not good. Let me give you another aspect of life. Yeah, I think I have time. I'm just in, in a secular age, and maybe this one will touch a little closer to home, is it's just this frenzied consumerism of our day. We've been talking about this in our, in our sex and money class, the combined adult Sunday school class. But in a world that doesn't, have, that doesn't see God as authority, we still have this remaining quest for you know, self-satisfaction and for, for, for meaning inside of us. And so, and, and marketers, they know this and they found a way to prey on the, on, on, on those insecurities that we have, those longings we have. And, and they, and they, they prey on that in hopes of getting us to buy their products. Just buy this product, you know, sign up for this service and, and, and you can solve all your problems. And we, we're eating up with it. One helpful commentary draws this out and makes this connection. He says, if a Hashuerus appears ridiculous, how much more ridiculous are we? And we, we can poke fun at him, but listen, if we had the money, if we had the, the opportunity, we'd be just like him. And we are in our own ways. We spend, he says, we're ridiculous and we spend so much time and energy on, and he says, on you fill in the blank. New sports car, great pair of shoes at the mall, the latest home improvement. Ultimately, it's all empty. The emperor's costly clothes are transparent and what may be seen through them by the discerning eye is ridiculous. True value lies in an altogether different empire. And with these opening verses, they do their, it's like the Wizard of Oz. It's like Toto sneaking behind the wizard's curtain and, 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 and just revealing the emptiness of it all. Revealing the ugliness. Revealing the emptiness of idols. That's what, that's what these verses are doing for us. The, the idols have changed their clothes since Ahasuerus' day but they're just as vicious as ever. And so we have to recognize them for what they are. And, 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 and doing so helps us to live as exiles in this world full of idols. So life as exiles is doable. Secondly, because God is present and he's active even when he seems absent. I know we've alluded to this already. Again, we've said who's missing from this story? God. He's not just absent from the nine, first nine verses here, the first eight verses we've read. He's absent from all ten chapters. His name is never mentioned. He never appears. He doesn't speak. No prophet speaks on his behalf. No one of his angels ever shows up. There are no miracles. There's nothing supernatural. 
There's no mention of Jerusalem or the temple or the presence of God. There's no mention of the priesthood or sacrificial, sacrificial system for sin. There's no quoting of other books of the Bible. There's no giving of God's laws. No one repents. No one prays. There's no action from God. There's no action to God that's ever revealed in the entirety of the book of Esther. Nothing. And that leads to all kinds of questions, doesn't it? I mean, God, if, if you exist, are you paying attention at all? Or do you lack the power to do anything about this wicked, wicked king? Is your glory not as great, not as powerful, or at least not greater than Ahasuerus's? And those of our day like him. I mean, how many of you in those dark, quiet, desperate, desolate moments have uttered or at least thought that very sentiment? Where are you, God? Where are you? Children being abused and women mistreated and Diseases ravaging bodies and monies being squandered and violence and hatred raging and lying everywhere. People living like they're gods on and on. Where's God? Where's God in the story of Esther? Listen, church, he's here. He's, he's we could say he's silhouetted in this book. You know about a silhouette. We have the we used to have these. I don't know if they're still on our dresser. I don't think they are anymore, but we had them for years. Our, uh, our oldest two, Callie and Carson, they, and when they went to the same preschool and the teacher did this little silhouette of their profile, you can tell exactly who it is. What is a silhouette? A silhouette is it's, it's, it's painting a portrait through absence. It's, it's taking away what's there and, and what remains. You can, you can, through that silhouette, see something. You may not see it at first, but you can recognize it. And that's what God appears in the story of Esther, but he does so silhouetted. You look, you look at the absence and it reveals His presence. God is silhouetted through the book. He, God works in Esther, not through these visible, uh, the visible hand of miracle, but He works through His invisible hand of providence. That's what we're calling this series, the invisible hand of God. What we see in Esther 1, and we'll see next week also, it sets in motion this chain of events that will ultimately lead to the deliverance of God's people. God is at work even when He appears to be absent. He, we know that history, it's not just this record, I mean, talking world history, it's not just a record of circumstance and fate and happenstance and chance and just this is just how things happen to unfold. It is governed by providence. The Lord is sovereign and He is good. And He's accomplishing His purposes. I had uh, coffee the other day with Eric Dial and just hearing the the... the his struggles and as he's facing this difficult diagnosis and the physical pain. And, but he said something to me and I just, it just has really struck me and I've thought about it a lot. He says, I don't tell people anymore that just that God is sovereign. I believe that, but I say he's lovingly sovereign. He's lovingly sovereign. He's good. Like this isn't just God up there, you know, pulling the strings of puppets in some cold calloused and different way. He, he is lovingly designed these things. So, so we see here, God rules and He reigns over peoples and times and places and the details of history. He's working out everything according to His plan for our good and His glory. Now, some of you, you feel at times like, like the story of Esther feels. 
and, and it feels like God is absent. He's gone. He's nowhere to be seen. He's not working. And I just want you to know, God is at work in your life in those moments as well. You may not hear His voice. You may not see His face. You may not, you know, the angel may not come. The healing may not occur. The prayer may not seem to be answered. His voice might not thunder down some dramatic way. Some, you know, ecstatic experience. But God is active. He's present. He, he, he cares. He's at work in the lives of His people even when they seem far away from Him like here in Susa. Long ways from Jerusalem. His hand is present and active even when it's unrecognizable. I read an article this week and just thought this was very helpful. He says, when, when you see one of the ten plagues, you know that's God. Like, that's obvious. Then he says, but when, you, when King Xerxes gets drunk and starts bragging, you don't say, wow, that's God at work. But the book of Esther is trying to tell you, don't make that mistake. God is at work. That's what... That's what we see here. So if you can't see, if you can't see God at work through the dumb political decisions that seem to be being made in on both sides of the aisle in Washington, or in the fear rhetoric of the news that's just so dominant, or you don't see his his hand in the the unethical biomedical research that's happening right now or in some decisions that are handed down from the Supreme Court, or, or the events that are transpiring on the world stage, if you don't see it in those ways, if you don't see it in the events of your daily lives right now, some difficulty you're walking through, church, you can't conclude that God is not working. This is, this is kind of forcing our hand, it's forcing our faith to grow here. God is at work. No dictator, no terrorist, no... No natural disaster, no financial calamity. Nothing will ever be able to stop the sovereign hand of God or thwart His promises to His people. I can be assured of that. And so this, this helps us, church, to walk as exiles in, a, in an idolatrous world, the world we live in, not, not angry and clamoring for power and not, not just kind of parroting the fear-mongering and the, and the angry rhetoric of our day. Not fearful, though, and hiding away and, 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 and just trying to protect ourselves. And, and, and stealing away. No, but we have an opportunity, as Peter says, to walk as sojourners and exiles, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls, keeping our conduct honorable, so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So calm, courageous, loving, hoping, risking, self-sacrificing living. It's doable. Lastly, how is it doable? It's because God's provided the better king. He's provided the better king. And when you hear the story of Ahasuerus, I hope there's this hollowness to it, this shallowness, this emptiness. We read this verse, first eight verse, and we go, that's it? That's it? That's all we get is this one guy who thinks he's a god, and people worship him. Then he dies, then some other nation comes up, and this next guy thinks he's a god, and people worship him. Then he dies. Is, is, is history just thousands of years of corrupt, rich, wicked men sitting on thrones, being worshipped as gods? Is that all there is? Nothing more? Is futility to it all? Well, here's the good news. Church, and we know this above Ahasuerus, there sits a greater king. 
This isn't the only book of the Bible. This this is part of a storyline that's pointing to to a a coming greater king. Above Xerxes, there's another throne, and seated on that throne is King Jesus. And Jesus is our king. And unlike Xerxes, he got off his throne. He he didn't just invite us to come and sit around him. He, He first came down to dwell among us. Xerxes was the son of the great Darius. Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes grew up never knowing poverty or humility. Jesus tasted both poverty and humility to identify with us. Xerxes used his power to abuse people. Jesus used his power to deliver people. Xerxes spent his whole life being served. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Xerxes slaughtered His enemies with His army of thousands. Jesus died for His enemies all alone to save billions. Xerxes sat on a throne in Susa for a limited period of time. Jesus sits on a throne in heaven and His reign will never end. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth at one time. Jesus made the heavens and the earth and rules all. Xerxes died and today not a single person worships him as God. Jesus conquered death and today millions and millions worship Jesus as the only God. Xerxes bound his subjects to him in the slavish fear. Jesus Followers are bound to him by strong cords of love. Xerxes thought he was a man who became a god. Only Jesus is God who became man. Xerxes threw enormous, lavish banquets. And as we were reminded a few weeks ago, Jesus is preparing us for us one that makes his just pale in comparison. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end. Jesus' kingdom will never end. Xerxes declared himself king of kings, but he died. And he will stand before and be judged by the one and only king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, we are citizens of a greater kingdom. We have received a greater gift. We're looking forward to a greater blessing. We gather in the name and the presence and the fame of Jesus Christ, the great King. And apprehending that is what allows us to live faithfully as exiles in the midst of an empire full of idols like we do. Let's pray. Thank You. Thank You, Lord, that we have a better King in Jesus. And our God is is not an idol made in human hands. Our God is not a a man who demands worship and sets himself up and clings power and authority to be uh, to be to be slavishly feared by men. You are you are in the heavens, Lord. You are not like us. You are exalted, and so as we behold you, as we sing these words, Lord, just enlarge our minds, Lord, that. That, that here these verses, they, they're setting up for us the, quote, awesomeness of this king, Ahasuerus. And we say, Lord, this, and, it's, and it's, it's a mockery. 
but we behold our glorious King. And there's not a word of adulation and the praise and there's not a there's not a, a phrase that we can use that's too high and too lofty to accurately describe you and your greatness and glory. And so we lift our voices and sing to you now, Lord, our great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.